So in our last conversation, we talked a lot about kind of the overall industry trends that are affecting automotive uh, development, engineering, lots of really interesting things. So now we wanted to dive a little more deeply into actual product development and what's driving change in that arena. So maybe just to kick off the discussion, I'm curious what you guys think is sort of the basis of future vehicle development. What will drive innovation and excitement, differentiation, all those you know key factors? Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting question. Uh, it's a hard question, I guess, just because you know what's going to drive innovation, customer excitement. It depends a bit on when things like autonomous vehicles become reality, and you know, are customers kind of buying vehicles for the vehicle dynamics, or are they buying them just from a purely functional, get me from point A to point B, and much higher interest in in kind of quality and and sort of basic functionality and you know infotainment that those sorts of things that's quite a possibility and and I, th- I think one of the things we i think we touched on last time was around that whole sort of infotainment and people coming with their expectations of their sort of mobile devices they're coming into a vehicle i think Doug was maybe mentioning about sort of you know younger generations that's one of the things they primarily care about when they're looking at vehicles regardless of whether you know whether it's shared ownership or or whatever it's their personal vehicle there's that sense of the personalization of the vehicle and the sort of yeah user interface and the the infotainment system and how they kind of interact with the vehicle is something which is increasing in, in importance i think i don't know doug you got any thoughts on that yeah i think it is a hard question to answer because it's it's you have so many consumers of the product that i think that the diversification of the product is really going to drive different types of development priorities and methodologies. So what I mean by that is you still have traditional models, so to speak. You and I, we want to go out and buy a car. What drives the consumers of those vehicles is much different. I personally still care about the styling, the design, the drivability, the driving aspect and and the handling of a vehicle. The younger generation, if you you want to use a stereotype, but they tend to feel differently about a vehicle. Uh, some of them do feel the way that I do, but some of them look at a vehicle as just another way to be connected to society, to their friends. They don't really care about the style of the vehicle, so they want to see features and functionality in the vehicle that drive their purchase, and those are their priorities. And the OEMs have to cater to both sectors of, of the market because they are all valued consumers. And that drives that individualization of the vehicle, of the product, drives just a horrible amount of complexity into their process. So it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. It's not realistic to think you can develop one platform that will address all the needs. So there's a lot of differentiation that they're struggling with. And that that differentiation more and more and more is being derived via software, not the hardware. So, And as we talked about in the last uh, episode, these are not software companies historically. So those are big challenges for them. And, you know, they're changing internally to meet those challenges. But at the same time, the external world keeps changing just as rapidly. So it's 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 almost like they're moving in quicksand at times because it's hard for them to stay on top of the trends. And some of the trends that they have to respond to or address, you know, come and go. And not all of the technology trends or investments that have been made over the last 10 years have gotten very far or have been realized. So they are not in a position to pursue and respond to everything. They have to be strategic. And that's why you'll see some companies jumped on EV and autonomous technologies earlier than others. 
Some companies 10 years ago or more were already doing things in the connected vehicle level with V to X and uh, V to I and whatnot. So there's different companies at different rates of uh, technology development, and they're all going to have to respond appropriately to close those gaps. So another topic we talked about last time was the post-COVID impact or the world as a result of COVID. And one of the things I mentioned was the consolidation of some of the players in these spaces, whether they're technology providers, tier ones or tier twos, you know, they're investing in areas that they're acknowledging they have technical gaps in, but are fundamental to their future business model. And in short order, they're closing gaps that take some of their competitors or could take competitors years to close without those strategic investments. So the answers to the tech and product challenges are not always tech and product process related. Sometimes they're pure business solutions that solve those. So, you know, it's a very dynamic environment. And my point is, it's not just technology. It's not just engineering. It's not just development process. There's so many different factors that come into it, which is why it's so exciting to be in the middle of right now. Hmm. So it's, yeah, it sounds like these companies, they're not just looking at how to develop advanced vehicles because they also have to consider what people are going to be demanding in the future. And when you look at something as you know that's as in the news right now as like self-driving vehicles, there's no guarantee that that technology is going to mature to the you know level five fully self-driving kind of level. So as companies are looking at these trends, you know how do they figure out what to invest in? Because of course they can't spend ten years developing a self-driving car that then never makes it to market in a meaningful way. Yeah. So again, I, I used the term individualization before, but that's not just people, it's markets or actually use cases, right? So I do see a time in the near future where we'll have level four and five vehicles on the road, so to speak, but there'll be very specific applications or use cases. There'll be geofenced areas, there'll be uh specific repeatable routes run through certain urban environments or locations like college universities or airports, you know, where there's very dense population of people in traffic, but it's easy to control the flow in contained or restrained areas. So I think we will see that type of technology, but I don't think it'll be prevalent on the road where people like you and I are walking into dealerships and buying cars that don't have steering wheels or gas pedals to drive us around. Because it's not that the technology and the corner cases are the limiter. Those are definitely factors and the regulations and everything else, the, the insurance models that go with it all have to be figured out. But at the end of the day, even if all that stuff was resolved right now, there's not a business model to support it. There's not a business case where an OEM can produce those types of vehicles at scale at a level that you and I can afford to buy them at to justify that business model. So I, I don't see that being a prevalent need that's addressed by many OEMs in the near future. There will be companies that do it for people that pay exorbitant amounts of money for their vehicles because they can afford to. And again, that's an individual case. It's a it's a small portion of the total market. And I think you'll see more and more of that. You see more and more of these startups are not trying to secure 10 or 15 million units of market share. They're going after very small pieces of the market and they want to exploit those use cases and be the best at exploiting those use cases. So it's a, it's a different game, but they bring technologies and capabilities that 
can have an impact on the broader industry. So that's why every once in a while, those companies do get snapped up by uh, larger OEMs and players. But, um, you know, here's an example of what I mean by that. If you have a vehicle that's on level five autonomous or a level five autonomous vehicle and it has passengers in it that is shuttling around a, an urban environment, but it never exceeds 25 miles an hour, well, that vehicle can be built relatively cheap because it doesn't need to withstand crash test impact worthiness and whatnot that a car that you and I would drive on the freeway would. And there's a different level of affordability to producing that vehicle. And it's in use all the time because it's running a 24-hour cycle. So there's there's a different business model proposition behind it. And it can be affordable. It, it can be justifiable from that use case. But again, that's not the type of vehicle that you and I would be driving on a regular basis or allowing our kids to commute in to school on a regular basis unless it was in that very defined environment that never exceeded 25 miles an hour was always on a repeatable route because all those other corner cases and the technology technical challenges haven't been addressed yet yeah and connor i guess just going back to one of the uh, one aspect of, of what you were asking before about you know what what's going to drive innovation you know all of those things that doug's talking about you know fundamentally those kind of innovations whether it's electrification whether it's autonomous you know, whilst there are other aspects of vehicle development where stuff obviously kind of develops, primarily, I think they are really developed by big shifts in the electrical system, in electronics, in embedded software, networking, those sorts of technologies. And, you know, and like I say, it's definitely true that there's other parts of organisations which are getting a lot of focus, like thermal, for example. You know, for electrification, thermal is probably one of, if not the biggest challenge, as well as, you know, packaging physically high voltage batteries is the actual cooling of those. And in order to improve their performance, their range, all of those sorts of things. But underlying all of these things that, that Doug's kind of talking about is a big shift that OEMs, that companies are kind of needing to make towards different capabilities in in software and in yeah, these sorts of uh, sort of like deep electronic knowledge sensors and, and all of that sort of stuff. And I think like Doug's saying, there's we're inevitably going to see consolidation as this part of the market kind of matures. You know, whether that's technology partnerships, whether that's companies being bought, whatever it happens to be. But I think one of the, the clear and obvious trends going forwards and, and is already well underway is that kind of shift towards double E systems really and an emphasis for organizations on those and how do they really gain a competitive advantage in those areas whether it's in-house whether it's partnering whether it's in the supply base whether it's whatever approach they kind of take business models what have you so i'm actually glad that you brought up the ee systems and the ee architecture i think it's something that we hit on in the last episode is the kind of growing importance of of those systems. So I'm hoping you guys could kind of describe why they are becoming so vital for the listener. You know, why are they becoming so important, I guess, is, is the basic question. I think with electrification, I think there's still massive challenges for, you know, basic stuff like infrastructure and definitely incentives. You know, and I think a lot of that, a lot of the development that's kind of happened in that market has been because of government incentives, whether legislative or financial incentives. And I think as soon as those get taken away, then, or if those aren't as pressured as much, like coming out of COVID, for example, you know, if they care more about making money in the economy, 
you know, for OEMs, I think they're probably going to revert back to creating more petrol engines because they can make more money on those and they need they need money. So I think, yeah, I don't know, it's, I think it's going to be an interesting one to see. I could definitely see a dip in the EV uptake. What's your thoughts on that then? You know, if, if that, you know, there are a few thoughts of mine. Do you think electrification? What would you think about that? Particularly, I mean, I guess like a US perspective, because I think US is a slightly different market than Europe and again, different from China in particular. Here's the way I think on electrification. I think that we are closer now than ever for there to be uh, justifiable business models where the players can make money on it. And when I mean the players, I mean everyone who's supplying infrastructure to the grid, the OEMs, the service dealerships, the companies that are, uh, you know, they're building brick and mortar battery plants around the world to support this market that's not there yet. So, mm-hmm. there, you know, there's a, a, a ton of investment on the, the come if basically. But from a business perspective, you know, supply and demand, market demand will determine whether it it succeeds or not. And I do believe it will. I I do believe that now we've gotten to the point to where the price point of the technology of the batteries primarily is affordable enough to where we are able to have the range of vehicle that the average consumer requires and demands. And it's at a point more and more so that it can be much more accessible and affordable. But then the other part is the fact that, quite honestly, the EV vehicles that are being produced now are just awesome. They're awesome designs because there's so much freedom with packaging and how to architect the vehicle because a battery pack takes up so much less space and volume. There's so much less restrictive packaging and thermal management around that subsystem or system of subsystems as opposed to a a battery-driven powertrain. And it's really making vehicles that are very compelling. And that's why I think that the EVs starting to take on or getting a lot more traction. What I disagree with with the EV market is this whole premise about it being green and better for the world and it's going to help the environment because at the end of the day, when you add up all the carbon emissions, that's a farce. You know, you're spending more money generating the power to pack in these batteries. You have to service and manage the life cycle of those battery cells and components. So, yeah, there's a secondary role that they play. When you take a battery pack out of a Tesla or a GM or a Rivian, you can repurpose it as part of the grid and use it as a backup energy storage systems at a decreased level of efficiency that's okay to have because you have more space to package these things in. But even those go bad after time, right? Then what are we going to do with them then? And then what happens to, how do we dispose with all these batteries? Where are the landfills? How do they handle all of this waste that's not exactly conducive nor healthy for the same Mm. environment that we're trying to protect with these EVs? And I think that there's a, a bit of a marketing facade behind it, but because of the product, the features, the capabilities, and the attractiveness that they offer, I do think they are going to be successful. And I think we're going to see a higher rate of adoption than we have over the last 10 years because the vehicles themselves are becoming more attractive and appealing. Mm. Yeah, one thing that I do think, though, where they can have a big impact is, you know, I definitely 
can understand the sort of bigger global warming CO2 impact is might not be as, as great as, as we hope. But I do think things like, you know, like uh, air pollution and reducing that, particularly in like cities, I think electric vehicles have a, you know, a, a decent contribution to make to that. Not that it will solve everything, but it's, you know, I think in that specific use case, and I'm sure others like it, they can definitely have an impact on on that. I think the other thing, going back to sort of the making kind of attractive vehicles, I think that's probably one of the best things that Tesla has done is the actual sort of experience of being in one of their vehicles and driving it. I mean, fundamentally, I think personally, electric vehicles are just more fun to drive than petrol, diesel vehicles, gas vehicles. I think, you know, the low low speed torque just makes them fun in terms of the acceleration. But the other thing which is which Tesla's I think done so well is that in vehicle experience and the infotainment. When you, you kind of get into a Tesla, it is like something from the future. And then when you kind of get back into a more traditional vehicle, it is kind of like stepping back twenty years. And it's like, well, yeah, there's maybe like a small little display there and there's you know, various bits and pieces, but there's still lots of buttons, knobs, dials, etc. So I think that's, you know, even in sort of slightly ancillary ways like that, I think Tesla's done a really good job of pushing the industry forwards. They raised the bar on what an EV could be. I think mm. before that, there was a lot of people making like, almost kind of cutesy little vehicles that are you know, the smart car, but electric, if that makes sense. You know, they're they're small, very much designed for urban commuting and not going on a highway ever at all. Not very attractive, not really that spacious or anything. And, and Tesla said, well, why can't an EV be cool? You know, and that's one of the biggest things they did, I think. But, you know, Dan, to your point, both of your points, actually, if you go back to one of the points I made earlier, like for me, when I go out to buy a car, style, design, driving, handling, those are factors for me. And Tesla basically addresses both of those markets that I talked about. They address the younger market because they can, those buyers can sit in a car and it feels state-of-the-art technology and it's automatically connected, right? And the, the center stack represents devices that they're used to interfacing with day in, day out. So it's almost intuitive. You don't need to learn that where buttons and you know certain features are located. You know, in the past, if I went from one brand to another brand, even within the same OEM, the IP was laid out differently. The button configurations were laid out differently, even on the steering wheel. So there was, you know, you had to relearn things, whereas Tesla, it did seem to be almost intuitive just because of the way we interface with consumer electronics on a daily basis. And now you see OEMs that panned the design years ago now being fast followers. And at mid-level price points, we're seeing these very integrated center stack consoles, in many cases doing away with uh, a traditional IP or instrument cluster in front of the driver, maybe just a more limited set of data is there. And in many cases, the traditional instrument cluster itself, that electromechanical device with drivers and motors and, and a PCB and dedicated displays and heat sinks and all that, which is a relatively complicated and expensive device, is essentially being obsoleted by this more integrated center stack display that quite honestly was seen for the first time on a Tesla and it's becoming more of a standard type of cockpit interface now. So yeah, it's uh it's interesting to see how technology and I mean this is a design implementation, the user interface implementation be adopted across the industry like that. Hmm. Yeah, and one of the other things I think which 
Tesla did is kind of one of their sort of revolutionary features, I think, which maybe sort of pushes us towards talking a bit about something around like double E architectures maybe is, is really their over-the-air updates. I mean, I think that certainly from, you know, I don't own a Tesla, but I know from speaking to Tesla owners, that's one of the things that gives seems to give them the most delight. It's just that your vehicle is different and better now than it was six months ago. And, and I think that sort of future-proofing vehicles as they're kind of being designed, you know, five years in advance, I think that's a really interesting challenge from a, a double E architecture point of view in terms of that balance of, you know, how do you kind of put enough technology in so maybe there's a little bit of redundancy when immediately for the first vehicles that are sold, but knowing that two, three, five years down the line, that's going to come to life when legislation catches up or when software catches up or functionality or, or what have you. So I think that that's quite an exciting, an exciting thing. Yeah, no, that is a great point. That's actually one of the main enablers for new business models that most of the OEMs, if not all the OEMs, are pursuing now and trying to drive revenue after the point of sale. And uh, over-the-air updates is the only way to do that or one of the only ways to do that. You know, the, and it's like you say, the those updates are continuous. Consumer or drivers of Tesla today have uh, much better efficiency or range in their vehicles, uh, almost 10% than they did when they first bought vehicles because of software algorithms that have been updated based on monitoring of actual drive usage, drive cycle usage of, of uh, users on the road. So, I mean, that's a very impressive capability there. And I think, Dan, you might have even mentioned to me before that during a hurricane in Florida, the Tesla modified software algorithms to improve the range and all the vehicles that were leaving, you know, the state due to the hurricane evacuations, you know, stuff like that's just incredible. And then Rivian, um, you can easily go on YouTube and if you Google or if you search for tank turn, Rivian demonstrated on uh, one of their prototype vehicles, you know, they didn't add any hardware. It was purely a software feature addition, but they were able to demonstrate a 360 degree tank turn type of rotation of one of their pickup trucks, just like you would see in a military vehicle. And they implemented that feature 100% via software. And the hardware to do it was already there. It was already present in the vehicle. They didn't need to modify anything in that regard. So yeah, it is very powerful, but it also is very dangerous, right? We know that right. there's statistics out there. There's over 100 million lines of code on current vehicles. We know that that's going to increase. There's engineering bodies out there that estimate for every 10,000 lines of code in a vehicle, there's as many as 15 bugs or defects. So clearly, it's a very large concern for the OEMs. So those over-the-air updates are going to become even more critical because that's how they provide patches, fix uh, gaps in their security. It's going to be very complicated challenge for them. And, you know, there's there's different levels of regulations around those updates. If they're offering new features, those have to be validated and proven out and approved, right? If they're providing fixes or patches, those don't need to be validated per se uh, on a system level basis. And then also these OEMs are trying to reuse legacy data. They're trying to take legacy data and build on it because system complexity is evolving. They're using standard data, if you would, or off-the-shelf uh, data that's readily available from third parties. And they're also, obviously, custom-developing their own data or their own software code. So there's there's a myriad of software environments that are coming together 
And then you always have to worry about external threats, people trying to access the vehicles and modify their performance characteristics or just steal data. So it's a, a very complicated environment for our customers these days. It's vehicles as a service, huh? Yeah. It's kind of what we're trending towards. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? That kind of continual sort of development of, you know, more features getting thrown in, but you know, it's that sort of race of the, the sort of dual thing of, of more features coming, but it creates more sort of overhead maybe in the development process or the validation or the homologation of, of vehicles. And, you know, it reminds me when, for, for a company I used to work for when, you know, we had this constant battle with really aggressive light weighting, which made, you know, you wanted to kind of get the vehicles lighter, 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 but balanced against more and more and more and more features being demanded and added into the vehicles. And you were on this kind of ever, ever sort of uh, losing battle to try and get the vehicles lighter whilst adding in loads more extra functionality. And a lot of that's driven by hardware for sure, which is obviously the, the weight challenges. But it's interesting when you sort of, you know, in that specific case where maybe some of that, like you're saying, Doug, some of that you're freed from some of the hardware dependencies and actually you're getting new functionality just through software, through using the existing, you know, somebody has an idea post SOP of how you can use that vehicle better or in a new or an interesting kind of way or bring some new sort of delight feature for the customer that you can just implement in software and push out to customers. But none of that stuff's free, is it? You know, like you're saying, there's validation, homologation challenges, there's, you know, services, there's support, there's all of those things that kind of need to go behind the scenes. So what you're touching upon there a lot is requirements, tracking and traceability. I mean, we're, you're going to be talking about continuous revision in code or portions of your code, continuous threat from external entities, regularly known phenomenon amongst software referred to as software shifting or drifting that can take place over time, which means it performs a little bit differently in conjunction with the hardware it interfaces with. So, and then a lot of these updates, if you're making a significant system level update to a vehicle, you need to be able to, to back up and revert to the prior revision of software or version of software in case, you know, there was a bug or glitch in that, that latest software that was released. So the management of that full EE system from the hardware interoperability with the electrical connection systems that bring all the modules and devices together, and then the software that's running on all of those separate ECUs or multi-core ECUs has never been more complex than it is now, and it's never been more essential that each of those domains truly understands the impact they have on each other as those vehicle architectures are being developed. And all the major OEMs are going through that right now because you can't support this over-the-air functionality. You can't support the uh, redundant utilization cases for instances that are required in autonomous vehicle development. And there's a myriad of examples that we can provide, but that's what the OEMs are struggling with right now because they are developing brand new architectures to support that level of feature and functionality because the vehicles of today and the historical vehicles just just aren't capable or not equipped to do that. Mm. Yeah, and, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because it drives, it's like that next level of sort of driver for 
real proper systems engineering and you know all of the different domains having clear sight having of what each other are doing and being able to trace and analyze system level impacts where you make a a change in one bit whether it's a network signal or you know a wire or some bit of software code and seeing how that being able to see the ripple effects of that back up into the requirements and what other systems that kind of impacts it feels like it sort of takes that to the next level again and puts yet more kind of impetus on being able to do that sort of system level design and you know proper architectural design and and let that drive software electrical electronic development yeah so you're basically talking about uh breaking down silos or blurring the boundaries i mean we we know that that is a historical challenge many of the newer companies that we see have flatter organizations and the responsibility or scope of of the engineering teams at times is much broader than what we've seen historically. And that's in large part due to the breadth and scope that they want to have when they take into account the overall vehicle architecture and and development. It's a more holistic approach as opposed to a, a series of disparate or parallel Vs development cycles that are brought together at the end, which is the historical way the vehicles have been developed. But obviously that's not going to be conducive and it's going forward and part of that is because the oems you know you touched about the on this before dan you talked about the um a lot of the differentiation coming from the software and that's a specific strategy for many of these oems right they feel their brand differentiation is going to be provided via features or functionality that is software driven they basically want to commoditize all types of hardware wherever possible so that they have two or three suppliers that can supply them respective unit, ECU, and they can put it into their architecture. And it doesn't matter which supplier it came from because it's the software that's running on it that differentiates it. And that software is coming from in-house. So this is driving new value propositions all the way through the supply chain, too, on what value they bring and where they derive their profit from, ultimately, because profit is indicative of the value you bring your customers. So my point is, is that device suppliers are essentially being squeezed into a commodity manufacturing role, potentially, unless they move upstream or they develop capabilities that are needed and important to the OEMs that they don't have themselves. Mm. Yeah, there was a really good quote from, I think it was in 2019 at one of our IESF Munich events. There was a, a keynote speaker there from, I think it was Strategy Analytics, who was basically saying that, you know, all of the people in the in the sort of OEM value chain, you know, from OEMs down to whatever tier supplier you're looking at, one of their biggest challenges is going to be defining or redefining who they want to be and where they want to kind of play in it, where you have, you know, tier ones who are just component suppliers wanting to move into be system integrators or, you know, whatever level that is, OEMs picking up some of the core sort of IC development and technology and, and those sorts of things. But What really stuck with me, what he was saying was just, you know, that companies need to really define themselves who they want to be. Otherwise, they will will just get pushed and boxed into a certain area because everybody else will be kind of making land grabs for for new, yeah, new bits of the business and expanding into new operations. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. I think that's a real struggle. And, you know, some companies have been doing what they've been doing and they've been doing it very well for a very long time. But, um, and they might not be as well equipped to to modify that business model. But, you know, others are moving very aggressively and very yeah. strategically, you know. So, like I said before, it's a very fun time to be in the industry just because yeah. of sure. how much is going on. And every day there's something happening, something different changing. So it's uh, 
very dynamic, and um, I look forward to the next five to ten years. Awesome.